According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm just a little bit discombobulated this morning. As you might expect. LaRosa, are you ever discombobulated? Discomlarosated? All right, there we go. That should work. Making sure our phones are off, other noise-making devices. There we go. All right, Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14, we're moving on to a new episode today, The Demands of, of Discipleship. Episode 22 in the, the last, uh, uh, or the pre-in ministry, Demands of Discipleship. We've gone down through verse uh, 24 in uh, our last session as we were discussing the I'm in the wrong chapter. As we were discussing the uh, parables and the messages the Lord was giving there. There we go. That makes more sense. And uh, the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, it's actually not called a wedding feast here in Luke 14. But when he teaches it again in the Gospel of Matthew in, during his Passion Week, uh, he does very much describe it as a feast that a king gives for his son, a wedding feast that a king gives for his son. And we understand the eschatology of this, looking forward to the millennial kingdom. And uh, all of the doctrine that goes into the uh, the work of this slave and the gathering of these guests and the things there. Um, in any event, that was last week's class, taking us down through verse 24. For today, we're in verse 25 and moving on to the end of the chapter. Large crowds were going along with him, and he turned... And said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, because if we're not careful, then a verse like that might get us a little upset. So let's make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit, humble under the authority of God's truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word, thankful for the blessings we have to assemble together and receive instruction. Father, we're also mindful of this current week and the anticipated issuing of the building permit that's been so long in coming, Father, with all the rejections and delays and everything else. Father, be at work. We anticipate this Friday is the deadline and just be at work there and provide for it, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Really, there's uh, three overall principles we're going to glean out of this. And uh, the second one is the one that has all the subpoints and all the content as far as the principles of discipleship are concerned. Uh, let's just read from 25 to 35. We'll get an overall view of the, of the passage and then come back and pick up the details. Uh, we've already read 25 and 26. Relax a little bit, if you would, about that language of hatred. That is an, an idiom or an expression, and we'll describe that for you here in a moment. It goes on, though, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right. Um, There appears to be three or four separate, unrelated, uh, disjointed messages, and yet it's not. It's really one cohesive series of messages, and we're going to show you the progression from one to the next to the next. As far as that goes, let's come back and get the details, though, because what we observe right off the bat in the uh, first verse is that the crowds are starting to increase again. The crowds are starting to increase once again. And it's a little bit backwards from the pattern we've been observing because he reached a peak, really, with the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. And it really has been downhill ever since. But now, with simply three months to go until the cross, there starts to be a a resurgence, as it were. There starts to be, once again, kind of a last uh, hurrah, if you think of it in those terms. Um, and yet we wonder what the uh, the source of this is. Was it is it truly positive volition? It wasn't last time positive volition that drove the increased numbers. I think uh, he exposed it for what it was last time when he pointed out that they were simply there for the earthly food. They didn't really want the message. They didn't want the depth of teaching, and uh, and and so he drove them away at that point. And when when his popularity peaked and then and then declined, the same thing is happening here. I think the um, the uh, the increased numbers are the spectators, if you will, um, not unlike a, a train wreck or another you know disaster that people will gawk at and want to see you know you don't want to watch but you can't look away kind of a thing. Uh, the more and more his conflict is raging with the Pharisees, we start to see more of that spelled out. In fact, in a couple of occasions, the uh, the the crowd observing was. Uh, commentating on how clueless the religious leaders were and how they didn't even realize uh, that this was the Christ that they were accusing and, and so forth. Well, the crowds are starting to increase once again. And as this happens, Jesus delivers some tough talk on discipleship. And I believe he very deliberately uses language of extreme. He uses confrontational terms. He uses uh, a strong word like hate to grab attention and to drive the point home. And this is a rhetorical device. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again. But here it comes out very clearly that you, if you don't hate your mother, then you're not a disciple. And you just raise your eyes and say, well, what are you, what are you talking about? I've got to hate my mother? Are you kidding? I've got to hate my father? I've got to hate my children? And you mean I've got to give everything away? How can I give everything away? See, as uh, as it concludes in verse 33, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Just get rid of it. And I know uh, you haven't done it yet because you still have things with you. You're still wearing clothes, for example. You still have things. And if you haven't given it all away, then you're not fit to be my disciple. So what's being spoken of here? What's the impact of this as we see the, uh, the principles of discipleship? Tough talk on discipleship. And what's happening here is I think it's a wonderful compliment to John chapter 8. In John 8, there was one qualification that was given for discipleship. 
And in that passage, it was called true discipleship. If you are, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, right? Hold your finger here in Luke 14. Let's just quickly take a look at uh, John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, one qualification for true discipleship is given. And here, too, is a chapter where there is tremendous conflict going on and and he's calling them a brood of vipers and he tells them that they're of their father, the devil, and they want to do the deeds of their father and they're going to pick up stones to kill him. This whole chapter is full of of, uh, conflict between Christ and these Pharisees. And um, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and that's the verse that i think we need to pay more attention to and and focus in our interaction with not only unbelievers that's a given you got to give them the gospel because if they're unregenerate they're going to go to hell but as you deal with non-disciple believers see in your in your family in your household in your workplace in your neighborhood see recognize in, in what happens here in the verses previous say from 21 down through 30 and he's talking about dying in your sins. He's talking about going to heaven and they can't follow him. And, and um, as he reveals all this, you see uh, verse 29. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Many came to believe in him. So you see their salvation. You see their faith. Right there in verse 30, they were believing in what he was telling them. Then he was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Now he's talking to believers. And we have to recognize what our message is to non-disciple believers, uh, baby believers or untaught believers. Maybe they've been saved for years and years, but they've never grown. They've never been under doctrine. They've never been to a point where their soul is saturated, where their mind is renewed. And what does Romans 12 tell us? If your mind is not renewed, then you're going to be conformed. If you're not transformed, you'll be conformed to this world. And so you've got a bunch of worldly, conformed, uh, non-biblically thinking believers. And they need to be biblically thinking. They need to have their mind transformed. And so if you live in my word, abide, continue, the verb meno is a dwelling term. You need to make it your home. Saturate your thinking with the word of God. Be at home with the word of God. Is the word of God at home in your thinking? Or is it a little bit uncomfortable? Does it feel out of place, right? I mean, there's, we, we understand what it means to be at home somewhere. You're comfortable. You fit in. You belong. You're not at all uncomfortable. You can kick your shoes off and put your feet up on something and you just, you belong there. You're not out of place. All right. And I think any one of us can illustrate that. And there's places we've been before that we really felt out of place and uncomfortable. And I just, I'll be better when I leave. I'll start breathing again. Or I'll start breathing when I get my children out of here because I'm terrified they're going to break something. And we just got to get out of here quick before we do more damage, right? And then, okay. And then we'll go back home and now we're comfortable again and, and that's fine. They can break whatever and it's, it's whatever. We're home. It's us. Well, the idea of being comfortable or uncomfortable, at home or not at home, the Word of God should be at home in your thinking. That's abiding in the Word. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And that's the mark of a true disciple, the legitimate disciple, the one that is functioning as a learner, a student, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's not a gospel message telling an unbeliever to get saved. 
This is a message to believers. He's speaking again in verse 31 to those Jews who had believed him. This is the freedom that's offered when a believer can start letting the word of God control his thinking, control his life, impact how he conducts himself. It's the wonderful freedom that you have as the word of God saturates your soul. So in John 8, there's one qualification for true discipleship that's given. And this passage doesn't contradict that. It complements that. Because in Luke 14, what you have are five expectations. Not a qualification, although you can think of it that way. I think it's better to think of them as five expectations. Because you're not going to do any of these five if you're not doing the one from John 8. You're living in the Word of God. You're abiding in the Word of God. And as you're abiding in the Word of God, then and only then, can you, as truly as a disciple, can you fulfill these expectations of discipleship? So in Luke 14, there are five expectations for discipleship that are detailed. And I think if we break it down between a qualification on the one hand, in John 8, abiding in the Word of God, and then these expectations on the other hand in Luke 14, that may form a... uh, a distinction that will help us to reconcile the two passages, to put them together, and, uh, and have, I think, a, a complete understanding of what this discipleship is. So let me get back now to Luke 14. Now, I suppose as we go through these five items and we recognize that uh, failure to... Um, Failure to uh, fulfill these, are they disqualifying failures? Are you no longer an apo- uh, a disciple if you, uh, if you don't hate your... Uh... Well, we'll go one by one. We'll see what these expectations are. And then we'll ask ourselves, are these disqualifiers? Or are they simply symptomatic of the one disqualifier from John 8? That you're not living in the Word of God. Because that's fun- fundamentally what it's going to come back to every single time. So... Let's uh, spell them out. The first one then, temporal life living. Temporal life living must be placed in absolute context against spiritual life living. Temporal life living must be placed in absolute context against spiritual life living. If you are misprioritizing family life, Talk about your earthly family, temporal life, uh, relationships, romance, family, career, income, any temporal life circumstance and detail of life. If those are misproportioned so that they detract from your spiritual life priorities, you're not a disciple. And I believe it's a reflective of the fact that you're not meno abiding, living in the Word of God. Because you're not living in the Word of God, you're not transformed by the renewing of your mind, you're conformed to the world, and the testimony to that is that you place uh, family uh, priorities over spiritual priorities. So this is sub-point A under main point two. Temporal life living must be placed in absolute context against spiritual life living. Absolute contra- uh, context meaning that you can even employ language of extreme to show the, the relationship between them. And that's what we have here. The language of hate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. Now this is the language of extreme. It's going to contrast hatred for your earthly family as a contrast with your love for Jesus Christ. Alright? And so we recognize that what's happening here in a contrast is called the language of extreme where you're setting the absolute opposites 
the absolute opposites as the contrast so that you can show the ultimate. It's like as far as the east is from the west. All right, that's an infinite distance. And so when you're setting that up as the contrast, you're showing that this is this, that is that, and your priorities have to be unquestioned. So the language of hatred. Now, obviously, hating your father and mother. When the Ten Commandments tell you to honor your father and mother. So does this verse contradict Exodus 20? And then the Ten Commandments that are repeated, not only Exodus 20, but Deuteronomy chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 6. Children are commanded to honor their father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise, and your days will, will be long on the earth, and so forth. So passages don't contradict. You can't say, well, this is true and Exodus is false, or Exodus is true and this is false. They're both true. And we have to understand them both being true in their immediate context, in their immediate application. And so we have to evaluate what's really happening here. Does God really want me to hate my mother? Say, she's sitting here today. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I've never taught this verse with my own mother in, in an audience before. But see, this is the language of extreme. Paul employs it, for example. I remember in the uh, uh, passage uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's detailing spiritual gifts. And he talks about knowing all things and having the gift of prophecy and knowing all mysteries. And even if you have a spiritual giftedness to learn the scriptures and you learn so much that you even attain to the level of omniscience, you know all mysteries, you have all knowledge, you become omniscient in your Bible studies. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty extreme, isn't it? And none of us are going to become omniscient. See, even if we think we're, we know it all, we're not going to be omniscient. But even if you do know everything there is to know and don't have love, then you're a clanging cymbal, you're a, a ringing gong and the things there in 1 Corinthians 13. So that's another passage we've had recently where the language of extreme is used in order to communicate, in order to communicate. So if um, it's like no one can serve two masters. You either love the one and you, or you hate the other. And that's what happens. And when you place it in a contrast, it has to be stark, absolute, day and night. There is no comparison. See? And so when it comes right down to it, of course, you love your mother and father. Of course, you love your wife. But compared to your love for Jesus Christ, well, if you're going to put it in those absolute terms... My mother didn't die on the cross and purchase the redemption for my eternal soul. All right. And my wife did not. And my children did not. And when it comes down to an eternal absolute, my love is for Jesus Christ. I love because he first loved us. And we need to understand as far as that goes. So why is it then that these conflicts arise and believers will then compromise their Christianity? They'll compromise their walk. For a girl, right? Or for a relationship or for a romance or for a, a, a what have you. Say, so, well, I know this is the truth, but if I don't, uh, you know, if I don't compromise, I have my norms and standards because God wants me to live this way. But, you know, if, if, if I follow that, then I'm going to lose this girlfriend. Or I'm going to lose this boyfriend. Or I'm going to lose this whatever. And so I'm going to violate my standards. I'm going to commit personal sins. I know they're sins and I know I'm wrong. But I'm going to do them anyway. Why? Well, because I'm in love. Because uh, my emotions are caught up. Oh, because 
I'm afraid. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose that. And so believers compromise. And what are they compromising? Eternity for temporal life. And that's the description in Matthew 16, uh, which we'll see. I think we have it coming up in the notes. Um, We see, you know, what will a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What price are you paying when you're doing damage to your soul? That's that's my biggest concern for this generation coming up is not the and they've got all these statistics for what for the damage they're doing and their drug use and their promiscuity and all the things that they're doing and all the the percentages of young people and the diseases that they have now. That's 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 physical. What what is the damage they're doing to their soul in the process of that? So. Um, but interestingly enough, not only is it the father and mother, but then it's the wife and children here as well. So, you know, even beyond when you get past that stage of leaving father and mother and now you're cleaving to one another in, uh, now in your own generation, um, goodness, my wife, I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. So does this violate Ephesians chapter five? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. No, it doesn't violate that. You want to understand this passage in the context this is given has to be understood in that in that capacity. So compared to Christ, if there is a if there is now here's the key, if there is a division. In other words, the will of Jesus Christ is this and the will of my wife is that and they're in opposition to one another. See what I'm saying? Then I have to love the one and hate the other. If I'm going to be obedient to Jesus Christ, if I'm going to be obedient to what it is that God would have for me to do. Now, hopefully, hopefully um, I can then have ministry towards my wife and we can bring about an adjustment to her thinking and what she has going on, where her desires will be in line with Christ's desires and so forth. You see what I'm saying? And so then it's not an opposition, love one, hate the other. You love both as as they're in harmony with one another. But if that division's there, then you have to choose. You have to choose. This is why we're, we're commanded not to be unequally yoked. This is why no believer should ever marry an unbeliever under any circumstances. Because you're just entering into a marriage relationship then with a built-in conflict that the New Testament commands you not to do. See? And then children. Oh my goodness. As... Uh, this congregation can illustrate and, and uh, anyone that uh, adult children can illustrate, you know, and uh, things are pretty simple when they're small and spankable. And then uh, then they reach uh, teenage years and there's more challenges there. And then they and then uh, and then they're out from under your authority and they're in adult capacity doing things that if they were young and spankable, you'd be spanking them for it. <laughs> but now they're adults and now they're doing what they're doing. And so how, it is, how is it that you can still minister towards them as adult children? And what is expected of you towards your adult children and all these other things? And what happens if you have to hate your own child? Because they're not, they're walking in a manner contrary to how you raise them. They're walking in a manner contrary to how Christ would have for them to walk. Even his own life. Oh, I skipped over brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. Now think about it. What is it about your own life that you're supposed to hate in terms of career? We talk about how do you make a living? Why do we call income a life, right? <laughs> but you still you do. You make a living. You spend your life doing whatever your life pursuit or your life uh, we call it making a living. That your your income, your career, your workplace, 
you know, it's called a life. I'm not sure why, but idiomatically it is in any language you want to talk about. Greek, English, or what have you. All right. How do you make a living? How do you spend your life? Spend, you know, people that spend a lifetime in one particular career field, or one particular employment. And we use the same idiom too, like your work life versus your home life. And you don't want to bring your work life home, you know, to your home life. Or how many men sacrifice home life for advancing in their work life? See, well, we use similar capacities. But even his own life, even his own life, consider, you know, what would, uh, and I think, you know, some of the uh, pastors, like Pastor Stan Newton, for example, amazing, amazing uh, background in his education and everything. And, and uh, you know, as a Navy Academy graduate and as an engineer and all these things, and you consider what could he have been had the Holy Spirit not given him a spiritual gift of pastor-teacher and had the Lord Jesus Christ not opened the door for pastoral ministry for him? What might he have been? What might he have done? How might his life have turned out? You know, when he goes to his 30th uh, high school reunion and, and that, and they, they always evaluate, you know, how you turned out in life, right? Well, in a temporal life capacity, there's folks that would be very disappointed. Very disappointed in Stan Newton. People told him that, too, when he went to seminary. Oh, that's disappointing. You, you could do so much. You could be so much more. See? Well, temporal life living has to be put into context. It has to be placed in an absolute context that obeying Jesus Christ is everything and living in defiance of Jesus Christ is nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's horrid. It's abhorrent. You don't even want to give it consideration. Now, there are passages that go with this. I think there's a parallel message over in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. This was earlier. This was actually at the onset of the Galilean ministry. And he is gathering his uh, 12 disciples. He's calling them apostles. He's giving them authority. He's sending them out. And uh, as they go out for their ministry two by two, they're learning about conflict. They're learning about uh, angelic warfare. They're learning about a number of different things. And then he has to teach them about discipleship. This chapter is full of information on discipleship. In fact, even before you get down to 37 and 39, you notice there's discipleship that's being taught in verse 24. That a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. And uh, anticipate that anything you do as a disciple is an imitator of Jesus Christ, which includes uh, being mistreated, being hated, being rejected. Then you get down to um, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Right? So all the Christmas hymns and all the, the panaceas of peace on earth and whatever, that's not the church age. Peace will come. I can visualize world peace, all right. It's going to happen after battlefield victory at Armageddon when the blood is as high as the horse's bridle for 200 miles around. It's kind of hard to put on a bumper sticker, but, you know, folks out there that want to visualize world peace. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Why is that? Because when you name the name of Jesus Christ, you're in a new household. 
you are now no longer in the domain of darkness, but you've been transferred in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And as God the Father's child, this dark world will hate you. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. See, now there it is again. You have to put it into that contrast. If it is an either or, if it is an, a, uh, a uh, hostile contrast, then you must choose you this day whom you will serve. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his own cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That cross-bearing will be our next point. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, what do we mean there when we're talking about losing your life? What do we mean when we, you know, over in Luke 14, when we talk about hating your life and losing your life? It means exactly what we were just talking about a minute ago, where, you know, you have this, whatever career it is that's in front of you, and you give it up. What was it the, the, uh, our missionary was telling us on Sunday afternoon? Remember when uh, Mrs. Jacob was talking about her career? You know, she had a medical career in front of her. She was going to medical school. And she had to be, was she willing to forsake medical school? Was she willing to forsake the life that was, she had planned out for herself was that life of medicine. And, and she was doing very well and her grades were very high and she had a very promising career in front of her. And uh, she, she confessed before all of us on Sunday that she, she was convicted by those scriptures. Because uh, like the Lord asked Peter, do you love me more than these? And uh, the Lord was asking her that. Do you love me more than this medical career? And she just wept and wept because she knew she did. She knew that she was loving her medical career more and that was wrong. And she had to let that go. So uh, losing your life, meaning here I am, send me, meaning uh, day by day my life is in his hands, whatever he wants to do with it. My career, my workplace, my where I live, what I do. You know, it's not really even unique to the New Testament it's certainly not a church age. None of these passages are church age passages. But even when Israel was being established as a nation, you get to Deuteronomy 13. At the very beginning of Israel's stewardship as a covenant nation. You see these principles here. And here it's really kind of different because not only is it in the church age, we understand it. In the church age, we understand when you get saved and come to Christ and then you now have a new family. But think about Israel. Your father and mother are in the same tribe you're in. <laughs> okay? Same tribe, same covenant nation, same Jewish uh, status as, uh, as a, uh, the status of, of uh, the earthly stewardship of Israel. You, you're not in any different tribe. But you still have to understand that if you have spiritual priorities and obedience to the will of God and your parents don't, and so we read about it in Deuteronomy 13, if your brother or your mother's son uh, or, your, or your son or daughter or the wife you cherish or your friend who is, your own, who is as your own soul, like with the David and Jonathan situation there with the friendship intimacy, if they entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known or the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. And your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. So you start to consider when these unbelievers are tempting you to defy God's word, what are they, what are they tempting you to do? 
They want you to go and serve other gods. You might not think of it in those terms, right? But is that not what they want you to do? If you're not going to obey the Lord God, who are you going to go obey? But you shall surely kill him. (laughs) Wow, you thought the language was extreme in Luke 14, where you had to just hate your mother. Well, this passage is saying not only do you hate your mother, your hand will be the first against him to put him to death. See, in the covenant nation of Israel, idolatry was punishable by death. And the first to cast a first stone were the first were the ones to testify, the two or three witnesses testifying to the idolatry. And so my sister, my brother, my child, my husband, my wife, my loved one is an idol worshiper. And they must be executed under the laws of Israel. And I have to be the first to cast a stone because I'm the one that's that's issuing the testimony before God and before man. And afterward, the hand of all the people, the entire community then comes together. The tribe comes together in agreement. This is an idol worshiper. This must be removed. And the community supports you because the community understands you're putting your, your mother to death, your wife to death, your, your son to death. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, so whoever it is, your friend, your loved one, your what have you, if they're influencing you to leave the Word of God, if they're influencing you to defy God's standard. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now, modern times, United States of America, you no longer have legal sanction to put them to death. <laughs> All right? But know how serious it is. Please know how serious it is. And when you're tempted to compromise because, oh, well, you know. And this is a, hor- this is a horrible, you know, when you talk to these young people or anyone and they say, oh, well, you don't understand. Oh, I love him. I love him. I bet you do. Breaks the heart, doesn't it? But I'd rather you have a broken heart than a damaged soul. How about that? That's why you're not to be unequally bound. And, well, well, what if I can, I can witness to him. I can change him. Oh, man, will you quit lying to yourself even now? You can change him. How about how he's already changing you? See, you have a clean garment, you have a soiled garment, and you rub them together. The soiled garment rubs off on the clean garment. You're not going to rub off the clean on the soiled and somehow sanctify that you're both soiled now at this point. It's the way that works. So temporal life living must be placed in absolute context against spiritual life living. And if it is hostile, if it is an either-or, if it is a, uh, a circumstance where they are in opposition, then choices have to be made. Who do I love? Who do I hate? Who do I serve? What am I doing? Second expectation. Discipleship demands total obedience. Taking up your cross. Discipleship demands total obedience. You understand what total means? It means that you don't have fine print. It means you don't have exceptions. It means you don't block off certain areas of your life and make excuses for that. It means you don't draw a line in the sand and say, well, I'll obey up to this point, but don't ask me to go beyond that. I'll obey when it's convenient. I'll obey up to a certain point. 
Discipleship demands total obedience. We cannot draw a line in the sand and fix a point beyond which we will not cross. And say, no, I'm not going to cross that line. A little play on words there because we're supposed to pick up our cross, aren't we? So there's no line that we should not cross. We're to be faithful until death. As it says in Luke 14:27, it doesn't say, um, pick up your easy chair. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me. That's what's expected. That's what's expected. And this is the thing that, that bothers me because why do we have a problem with this when we have it so easy? We are fat, dumb, and happy 21st century American Christians. And I, I absolutely think we've got to be among the, 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 the cheapest folks at the judgment seat of Christ. The real heroes, the real rewarded saints are the ones that are on the front lines. The ones that are dying for their faith. The Sudanese believers that are being killed by the Muslims. You know, again, Sunday, that missionary report was just powerful. And visiting with them at the fellowship time afterwards was tremendous. And even their, their 11-year-old son was a, was a blessing. 11, 13, whatever he was, 13 maybe. Jordan was his name. And um, describing the, the, the little pimples they'd get. And then you, you pop the pimple and, and this worm comes out. Ooh, that's right. <laughs> hmm. And the other parasites and the other critters and the other living uh, host organisms that they have crawling around inside of them and different things. And um, translating seven Sudanese languages, seven complete Sudanese New Testaments now in, Sudan, in different tribal Sudanese languages, 16 more in progress. And all the times they've been kicked out and getting relocated to to uh, Kenya and to Uganda and to Tanzania and these different places and working with these guys and having them arrested and killed and all these other things going on. And what is it that we have to deal with? Well, you know, there's traffic on 183. You know? Man, the price of gasoline and, uh, you know, all my hazards of ministry and the, somehow i don't believe the um the buzzards on the the road to huntsville monday are going to qualify for any kind of treasure in heaven as far as that goes a little bit exciting got my blood racing when i thought i was done but anyway it's not suffering for jesus and it's certainly not persecution if anyone whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple now you can look at this and say well isn't that a disqualification See, and maybe you want to. Maybe you want to, when, you, when all is said and done, you want to come back to John 8, Luke 14, put them together and say, all right, here's six qualifications for discipleship. And if you violate any one of them, then you're no longer a disciple. But I think it's still, in my mind, as I dwell on these principles and go over them, I, I still think it all goes back to John 8. It all goes back to living in the Word. And these other expectations are simply outworkings of living in the Word or not living in the Word. That uh, if, if um, to the extent that you are not willing to carry a cross, to that extent, I think it exemplifies whether you're living in the Word or not living in the Word. Because if you're living in the Word, then when that test reaches you, 
when that cross-bearing assignment is given to you, then you'll do it. Because you're living in the Word. And you're transformed. And you wouldn't dream of not doing it. It would even be, it would be you know, the temptation, the thought would come and you'd be, not my will but thine be done. Here I am. And you will take up your cross because you're living in the Word. So again, I think all five of these, as I've processed it in my thinking, these five are expectations that reflect whether you're living in the Word or not. So carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You realize carrying your cross means you're doing the unpleasant. You're bearing the load. You are struggling knowing that the end of the struggle is even more pain. You know, what's worse, being nailed to the cross or carrying it? Knowing that when you're done carrying it, that's what you can expect. See, the temptation is, is to not carry it in the first place, just to chunk it down and defy them and let them, you know, shove a sword through you here and now. But carrying the cross means that you're going to suffer all the way up until the point where they nail you to it. See, serving in a spiritual capacity. How about loving believers that you know are going to hate you for it? (laughs) Because you're ministering the truth of God's word. You're speaking the truth in love. You're reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and instruction. And when you're done, that very cross you've been carrying is the cross they're going to hang you on because they're going to hate your guts for telling them the truth. They're going to absolutely hate you for being faithful to the Scriptures. Well, that's what's expected here. Again, this is not the only time he's used this language. I think probably, you know, how many times did Jesus use the take up your cross language? Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be to my disciple. How many times was he using that language before he went to his own cross? I don't know why Peter and the other disciples were so blind to the reality of what was coming up. (laughs) He kept telling them, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross. It was the most uh, horrid, horrid method of execution the Romans ever developed. See, Persians developed it, Romans perfected it. The different things there. You know, some of the stories, you know, crucifixions by the thousands, 70,000 that were crucified by Titus in the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the, the thousands that Julius Caesar crucified and the different things. And even uh, when he was crushing the pirates and he told them he was going to crucify them and they, they, they didn't, they'd actually captured him and held him for ransom and he uh, found out what they were asking for and he was insulted and told them that they needed to make it ten times higher. And uh, and then he kept telling them that he was going to come back and kill them all and, and have them all crucified. And they laughed and laughed. And finally, he, they paid his ransom. And sure enough, he raised an army, came back, captured them all, took them to Ephesus, and crucified them the entire way from the shore to the city center of Ephesus, just lined the entire walk with crosses every ten feet. Anyway, don't get me going. All right, back to chapter 9. <laughs> It's not the first time he's told this message. Luke 9.23. Luke 9.23. Here he's feeding the 5,000 and, and, um, and then he's trying to warn the disciples about the, the um, leaven of the Pharisees and what it is to be a disciple. And who do the people say that I am? Well, 
And he warned them. And then he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. See, to the Jews... The cross was just the symbol of Roman dominance, the symbol of their oppression, the symbol of the fact that, you know, that was something that was done to you. The Romans would crucify you. The Jews wouldn't crucify one another. That was a Jewish method. The Jewish method was to stone the, the heretic, to stone the, the uh, idol worshiper and so forth. But uh, a cross was something the Romans did to you. And here he's telling them, take up your own cross. I don't have a cross. Well, get one <laughs> and take it up. Because the truth is, you do have one if you have your eyes open to it. You have an assignment the Father would place on you, and that's your cross. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, the total obedience means you can't obey yourself anymore. You must deny yourself. You have to have your not my will, but thine be done moment. So he's given this uh, message before, back in Matthew 10:38, Matthew 16:24. This Luke 9 passage is parallel to Matthew 16:24, and we were in Matthew 10 just a moment ago, so we don't have to go back to that. But what is it that we're not willing to obey? At what point do we draw the line? We say, well, I'll serve, but only up to this point. See. I'll obey God, but only if it's convenient, only if it doesn't cost me too much, only if uh, it doesn't intrude with other things I've got scheduled. <laughs> right? You know, church uh, is, is fine until uh, football season and then it conflicts with the Cowboys or what have you. Say, well, <laughs> that's why God invented TiVo, right? Just uh, <laughs> assemble together with the saints and then go home and watch the Cowboys. Whatever you want to do. Um, hmm. You know, I'll, I'll obey the call to ministry as long as, um, as long as I can have a domestic pulpit ministry in a stateside uh, local church. Uh, but don't ask me to go to some jungle somewhere, right? I'm not, I'm not doing that uh, pop the pimple and have the worm thing come out. <laughs> I'm, I, that's a line I'm not crossing. Or eating the green slime. They were talking about the green slime that they had to eat. That just sounds horrible. Yuck. Eat the green slime. Are you kidding? Well, do you love me more than these? What, 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 what are you really saying? That Jesus Christ is not worth it? Your, your, your preferences? Your, uh, what is it that you love more than Jesus Christ? Where is it that you draw the line? I've learned a long time ago not to say never. I try to never say never as far as that goes because never is just a tempting of the Lord. So, um, anyway. Thirdly, what's the third expectation? Discipleship carries a price. You have to calculate the cost. Discipleship carries a price to calculate as a project that demands completion. Luke 14, 28 through 30. In other words, if you're going to build a tower, you're going to build a bridge, you're going to build, you've got a project and you have to calculate the cost. 28 through 30. Calculate the cost. 
I think this gets mistaught. I've, I've heard it mistaught. I've probably mistaught it before. I've, I've certainly not thought of it in the right way. I think sometimes we read this passage and when we walk away from it, we say, well, don't count the cost. Just ignore the cost. Right? Money is no object. Whatever the cost, pay it. It's not what it says. It says count the cost and then pay it. <laughs> All right? But don't ignore what the cost is. Be mindful of the cost. Be aware of the cost. And make preparations to pay that cost. You know, it's, it's foolhardy to say, well, whatever it is, I'm going to spend it. You've got to know what it is. Know exactly what it is. And know what you're spending and why you're spending it. For which one of you, reading from Luke 14, 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're we're going to struggle here, guys. Any, anybody here going to build a tower? Probably not. All right. So plug in your own deal here. You want to, which one of you, when he wants to build a whatever, you got a room addition on your house or you want to build something. All right. You want to build a shed out back or, you know, maybe you don't want to build a tower. I do. I want to build a tower. I want to build a 300 foot tall tower and stick my teenage daughter up there and <laughs> dig a nice moat around the tower and post some alligators. Keep the boys away. That's the that's the objective at this point. And then Rapunzel can let down her hair and however else that works. But all right, so if you want to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate. Fascinating terminology, calculate. Only used twice in Scripture. It's used here, and it's used when uh, he that has wisdom is going to be able to calculate the number of the Antichrist. Right? It's only used here and in trying to calculate 666 or 616, depending on which manuscript you want to read. Um, and, and yet, this calculation is much more important because Antichrist calculation is for tribulational saints. Uh, we don't, we, you and I will never have an application to calculate the 666 application because we're going to be in glory long before Antichrist is ever revealed. Tribulational saints, on the other hand, they're going to they're do some calculation in their generation. But you and I need to do this calculation every single day. This is a calculus assignment for you and I daily to count the cost, to do the math and figure out what it is that the Father has for us to do and what's the price to be paid. And uh, when you're all done with your math assignment, I hope you'll understand that the price paid is already paid. All right. It's already paid in full. Jesus Christ accomplished that on the cross. And what I think I'm paying here in time is not worthy to be compared. It is a small price to pay. And yet it has to be calculated. I have to know the price and agree. Yes, I will pay that price. Why? Because Jesus paid the greater price. And anything I'm asked to pay is, is, not, even a, is not even a consideration. See, See if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish it. All who observe it begin to ridicule him. See, can you imagine you're trying to build this great tower? You got the foundation there. Maybe you got the walls halfway up, but then all of a sudden it stopped. 
you've got no more stone shipments coming in. Your, your masons aren't even working. You probably release them to go find other employment kind of a thing. And you've got those half towers sitting there. What's a half tower going to do for you? Right? It's supposed to be a full tower. It's supposed to be up to the top. You're supposed to have your, your crenellation emplacements and your arrow emplacements and your other features up there on the top of your wall and uh, the different brackets for mounting your, your oil and the different things that you're going to throw down and the, the death are going to rain down on your adversaries and all that fun stuff. But no, you've got a foundation, you've got half the walls going up, and the thing just looks stupid. And what happens then? You have this monument to your own stupidity. A monument to your own cheapness. <laughs> and uh, the mocking that then uh, sets in. All who observe it begin to ridicule him. See, Recognize we are under observation. The angels are watching. We are supposed to be instructive in the angelic conflict. And sadly, believers that are not willing to consider the cost and aren't willing to pay the price are uh, sparking the, mock, the mocking, the laughter, the derision from the fallen angels to recognize that here's an immature baby believer that's not walking in the light, that's not counting the cost, that's not a disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to understand that. That's the story of the, uh, by the way, I made this my wallpaper the other day. That's the story of this bridge in, in Amsterdam called the Skinny Bridge. You've heard that story before? The Skinny Bridge. Of course, Amsterdam's got all these canals. Everywhere you turn, there's canals all over Amsterdam and hundreds or thousands of bridges. But at this one particular point, the, the story goes back in the 1300s, uh, there were two sisters, two wealthy sisters on opposite sides of the canal. And they built this bridge because they wanted to visit one another. And the story goes, they were building this bridge and then they ran out of money. And so the bridge is a certain width, quite wide, until you get to that middle portion. And then they didn't have any money. And so then the middle section is just this little wooden, narrow uh, footbridge that you can walk across. But no wagon can go across, no vehicle can go across, no carts can go across. Again, it's the 13th century, so you didn't have, I mean, the vehicles were carts and horse-drawn carts and whatnot. And so you got this wide bridge up until the middle point of the river, and then there's this little wooden uh, you know, thing that could draw bridge that you could lift up kind of a thing. Anyway, it's called the Skinny Bridge. And that's uh, one of the landmarks in Amsterdam because, again, they ran out of money. They had this plan, they had this intention, but they ran out of money. And here we are 700 years later, and, of course, it was all bombed out and different things. It's, you know, survived wars and been rebuilt. But each time they rebuilt it, what have they done? Yeah. <laughs> Every time they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it to illustrate the folly of those sisters in the 1300s. Yeah, this current one was built in the early 1900s, I think. But there's a price to calculate. And we need to calculate the cost. So... The, uh, the principle here being, and, and there's a second application there, when you go to war, you have to consider what is it going to take to win this war? And is it winnable? And how do I win it? If I've only got 10,000, he's got 20,000, then how am I going to win that? Say, figure out how it's going to be done. Because if you can't win, then all you can do is surrender. And in the angelic conflict, is that really an option? <laughs> no. All right, so there's two more. I'm already at 11 o'clock, goodness. Um, but don't read this the way I used to read this about um, don't, don't count the cost. 
say, I used to read this, that, you know, really there's no price that, that you can't pay, so just pay whatever and don't even think about it. See, that's not what this passage is saying. This passage isn't saying, well, don't think about it. It's telling you to think about it. It's telling you to count the cost, calculate the cost, know what you're doing, know the price you're paying. Calculate that so that you can offer that up as a sweet smelling savor. See, we are adult sons that are supposed to be intentionally cooperating with the plan of God in our work assignment. We're not just supposed to be just mindlessly obedient, not knowing the price, not knowing the cost. We should be fully aware of the cost. See, a slave, a slave may not know the cost. A slave may not know what he's just obeying, doing what he's told. But a son, an adult son with full capacity that's called a fellow worker should know full well what the budget is, what the cost is, what the goal is, what the overall objective is, and intelligently cooperates with what's going on. So calculate the cost. Know what you're paying. Know why you're paying it. And be able to do so in grace to celebrate, to rejoice over it. Don't be the sacrificial whiny baby that after you've already paid the price, then you're going to gripe about it. We'll see that next week because Peter and the disciples started to say, well, Lord, we, we left our businesses. We left our family. We left for you. And Jesus had to correct him and gently say, you know what? You, you have reward. Quit whining about it. All right. Well, there's two more expectations. And then there's the principle of salt. And how is it that disciples are salt? We want to learn what our capacity is for salt and if there is still a salt benefit to our community then we can be thankful for that but if uh, we've lost our salt benefit remember we're salt and light in uh, as blessing by association in our community in our state in our country does our country have any salt left you wonder sometimes is there any light left is are we under the sixth cycle fifth cycle or headed towards sixth cycle where united states of america is removed from human history Well, we'll have to break that down for you then in verses 34 and 35. I thought we'd get further because there's still a D and an E and a point three. But uh, Lord willing, this is where we'll come back next Wednesday morning. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day, for our time together. Father, I pray that the challenging impact of these verses would strike each one of us. Father, the, am I willing to pay the price? Do I even know what the price is? Do I have capacity to understand what it is that you're asking for me to do? So, Father, I give that to you. I thank you for it. I thank you for our Savior. He had his eyes open. He knew what you expected of him, and he paid the price. And I thank you that we can be imitators of him. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.